you, Grayson and worship team. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah, <clears throat> a familiar spot for those of you that are regulars. We've been there. This will be three weeks. Uh, good news, uh, this is it. We're going to finish up Jonah today. Uh, we're going to continue to work through the minor prophets over the coming weeks. Um, but here's what I want to do today. This, this is uh, almost like a recap. Last week, we talked about uh, running lessons from Jonah. We talked about how he ran from God, he ran to God, he ran with God, he ran away from God. Uh, we we want to see how we can figure out how to walk in the ways that Jonah walked that are positive, not a lot of them, and we want to make sure that we don't walk in the ways that Jonah walked that were negative, that were detrimental. And so today, the, the simple title is what Jonah means for us. I'm going to skim a couple of things, a few things that we've already talked about, but I hope to kind of give you some some shed some new light, some insights on the life of Jonah, the life of this prophet, uh, and try to figure out how we can learn from him. Um, I think that one of the most remarkable and, and encouraging things to me about Scripture, uh, something that I think speaks to the reliability of Scripture, is that we don't just always see the positives in the servants of God. It would be really simple if you were going to write a book to build a religion to only write the positives about anybody that you put in the book. So Peter would never deny Jesus. Thomas would never have doubts. Jonah would not have been disobedient. Or at least if you were going to see Jonah be disobedient, we would cut it off at the end of chapter 3 and we'd all go home singing Kumbaya thinking Jonah was a good guy. He got his life turned around. But that's not how God works. That's not how scripture works. We see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we're going to see that in Jonah. So hopefully we can look at some of these things in the life of Jonah uh, and figure out how, how we can learn from that and grow from that. Now I want to give you a warning. Um, this is going to be a little bit like a, maybe like a semester test or a final exam. There are 12 questions that I have in this sermon. Didn't set out to do that. That's just how it fell out. So one of them, I think at least one of them, maybe two, that I'm going to give you the answer. Uh, but really, most of these questions, here's what I really want you to do. I want you to take these questions home with you today. Uh, I want you to discuss these uh, maybe with your spouse or your kids or, or, or maybe a friend. Uh, maybe you just sit and kind of marinate in these questions and soak in them and try to figure out uh, what, what is your answer? Uh, how would you answer some of these things? And what is God trying to say to you through these questions? So uh, I'm going to pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. I did this in the first service. I'll do it again today. For whatever reason, I've just got my mind is kind of fractured. So I'm going to ask you to do something weird. I'm going to pray for us. I want you to pray for me. So while I pray over our time in the Word, our time in this message, I'm asking you to pray that God would move me out of the way, uh, remove barriers that I have in my life, in my mind, and that He would speak today, not me, that you would hear from Him and not from me. Okay, will you do that? Let's pray. Lord, I, just, uh, I ask you to use this time for your glory. I ask you to speak clearly through your word, with your spirit. Uh, Lord, that you would speak to us and that we would respond in obedience. Uh, I know that all of us, I, I know me. Lord, I know that, that I have Jonah in me. I have tendencies in me to be like Jonah, and I don't want those. I want to flush those out of my life, and I want to be more sold out for you than ever before. I, I probably am not the only one. So, Lord, I pray that you would use this time in your word to, to sharpen us, to hone us, to conform us into the image of your Son, and we'll give you the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to, again, skim the whole book like we have done. We're not going to lock into one verse, but we're going to bounce around. And the first thing, I'm going to show you four things today, uh, and each one of those has some little sub subcategories. 
How many, how many, like, how many blank filler inners do we have? Like, I love to fill in some blanks. Today is your nirvana. We're going to, like, this is your day. Revel in it. Enjoy it. We've got a bunch of blanks on the note sheet today. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the prejudice of Jonah. The prejudice of Jonah. Remember, I told you that the Bible doesn't hide the humanity of the figures in the Bible, and so we're going to see it. And then I want to talk, I'm going to show you four things about the prejudice of Jonah. Number one, Jonah likely had a personal experience with the brutal Assyrians, which led to his contempt for them. So, so Jonah had likely experienced either uh, firsthand or maybe second or third, and he had seen how brutal the Assyrians could be. He may have even had some, some interactions with them, uh, and it, it formed this prejudice. Uh, not all prejudices are innate. Some are formed. They're all wrong. <laughs> They're all bad. But sometimes we have experiences that form these things in us, and we have to make sure that we're asking God to flush those things out. Number two, Jonah likely had a profitable employment speaking against the Assyrians to Israel's leaders. I, I told you about this before, where he, he's speaking to the king, King Jeroboam, and he's telling him these positive, happy, shiny people kind of messages, and then Amos comes in like the dark rain cloud and just goes, nah, uh, I kind of feel like that's my ministry. <laughs> Uh, I wish I was more shiny happy, but sometimes I just really feel like God's called me to be a rain cloud. Uh, Y'all pray for me in that. Um, but, but we see that he was, he was basically the prosperity gospel preacher of his age. Now, I've worked very hard last week, and I'm going to work really hard this week not to say a name. I have said it to friends. I've said it to my wife, and they all did this. Don't do that. So I'm not. I don't think. Um, but he would be that kind of huckster you know that guy rolls into town hey friend god loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and and we all just need to hold hands and sing kumbaya and everything's gonna be great and god loves you as you are and you know love 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 and you know jesus is all about love and just love everybody all right that would be him it's all about the positive it's all about the warm and fuzzies but it's not about the truth and i think that any any prophet worth their salt has to come in sometimes and bring a little rain you know why? Because we're flesh. If there were no sin in the world, then prosperity gospel preachers would be great. I, I've said this before about a couple of them. I, I like to hear them speak. They're very gifted speakers. They're, they're engaging. They're, 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 you know, got that million-dollar smile, and that, you know, they're just cool looking. Here's the only problem. They're speaking to people who are lost without Christ, and they're not telling them that they've got to repent of their sins and come under the lordship of Christ. I can't enjoy a speaker when I know that the audience to whom he is speaking, he is giving false information. Good prophecy, good forth-telling, this is the word of God, thus saith the Lord, that's my job in this pulpit, is to tell you the truth, the good, the bad, the ugly, so that we all can understand what God's word is trying to say to us. Number three, Jonah was a prideful elitist. As he was opposed to the Assyrians, having any opportunity to repent. Here's the problem. We, we all have that tendency to have that elitism attitude. Jonah had it. We see it in Jonah. We see that he was missing the entire point of God's blessing to Abraham. In Genesis 12, we see God speaking to Abram, and he says this. He says, go from your land, from your relatives and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. He goes on in verse 3 to say this. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Not just the Jewish people, all the people. And so Jonah didn't want an all the people message. He didn't want an all the people blessing. He wanted a Jewish blessing, an Israelite blessing. Can I, can I just, can I get into some problems here? Memorial Day is last week, okay? So we're, we're clear. Fourth of July is another month away. If we're not careful, we can become in America just like Jonah was in Israel. If we're not careful, we can get this nationalism attitude, this elitist attitude that we say, I don't want, I don't want Iranians to get the gospel. I, I don't want Venezuelans to get the gospel. I don't want uh, Portuguese to get the gospel. I want the gospel here. I want God's blessings here from sea to shining sea. Oh, purple man. No. If we're not careful, we start thinking about this as an American gospel. And it's only important that we get the gospel in our communities and we plant churches in our local areas. Um, by the way, if you want to plant a church and you pick an affluent area to plant a church in, okay. Poor people need the gospel. People in the hood need the gospel. People on the mountain need the gospel. People in the valley need the gospel. People in other countries need the gospel. People in places the gospel is, is not welcome need the gospel. So we got to be careful that we don't turn into Jonah. Why? Because we all have a tendency. We all are made of the same clay from which Jonah was made. We are all formed from the same dust of the earth from which Jonah was formed. And so we have this tendency, if we're not careful, if we don't beat back the flames of nationalism, of arrogance, of pride, we can become an elitist just like Jonah was, and we can miss the point of why we're here. Again, I'll say this again. You're, you are not saved in order to go to heaven. That's not the reason that you are saved. You are saved to try to get others to go to heaven with you. If God is not a God of disorder, he's not a God of chaos, if, he, if, he, if the purpose of your salvation was for you to go to heaven, you would poof when you prayed. When you repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ, whoop, you're gone. But that's not the purpose. He leaves you here. Why? Because we are to be evangelists. We are to be missionaries. We are ambassadors for Christ. Number four, Jonah was a petulant evangelist. I'm probably going to throw that term in a lot because I like it. He only wanted to be a prophet when it benefited him. I'm trying real hard. <laughs> All right, I'll get past. I know some people who are like that. They want to blow in, blow up, and blow out and get a check. They want to come into town. They want to sing songs. They want to preach comfortable messages. They want to get a check, and then they want to roll on to the next place. Or they want to come to a church and preach that kind of fluff mess until things get hard, and then they want to go to the next bigger and better church, the next bigger and better check. That was Jonah. Jonah wasn't the first messenger of God to feel great distress in the mission that he'd been placed in, nor would he be the last. <laughs> I can tell you, it's, it's a continuing thing even today. Let me give you three examples. Moses in Numbers chapter 11. Moses. Heard of him? Kind of a big deal. Moses. Here's what he said in Numbers 11, 14 and 15. He's speaking to God here. He goes, I can't carry all these people by myself. To which I would say, duh. They're too much for me. If you're going to treat me like this, listen, please kill me now. Moses! Stick in the air, everybody. Moses! 
dry ground, Red Sea, heard of him. Like, this is a big deal. And yet, even Moses had this feeling. The prophet Elijah, Elijah, caught up into heaven, didn't go the way of the grave, not many of those. Elijah, the prophet, after he had seen God answer his prayer, burn up the offering, and then he slayed the prophets of Baal, he heard he had a woman mad at him. Amen. And here's what he said in 1 Kings 19, verses 3 and 4. It says, Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. He went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He just came off the mountain where he saw God send fire from heaven and burn up the offering and lap up the water. And then he slayed the prophets of Baal. He is on this mountaintop experience. He has one naysayer. He has one negative Nelly. And he flees and he runs off in the woods, sits under a tree and asks God to kill him. The Apostle Paul, hence we move from the old to the new so you don't think it's just Old Testament prophets that had a tough time. 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul is talking about the troubles that they experienced when they were on their mission in Asia. And here's what he said, we were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. You know what that means? That means he wanted to die. That means they had suicidal thoughts. They were ready to just cash in their chips because things were so bad. The Apostle Paul, again, I, I could give you other examples, but hey baby, Moses, Elijah, and Paul, I'm not giving you the B team. These are solid men that God used in powerful ways, and yet their, their strength ebbed when they faced some of the trials that we face. So before we pile on to Jonah and just think Jonah is some outlier in Scripture, that he's the only one that, that faded at the moment of decision, no. And I want you to hear me this morning. If you're leaning on your power and you're not trusting the power of the Holy Spirit in you to give you power for whatever mission he has called you to do, whether that's a spouse, a parent, a, a witness, a teacher, a, a nurse, a doctor, a, a servant of God in the church, whatever he has called you to do, whatever he has gifted you to do, if you're leaning on your power to do it, you're going to be no different than Moses, Elijah, Paul, and me. You're going to get to a point where you're going to go, I can't go on. I can't do what you've called me to do. I'm exhausted. I'm whipped. I'm done. That's where Jonah was. Jonah was more afraid of his enemies experiencing God's grace and mercy than he was afraid of experiencing the wrath of God. And that's a terrifying place to be. But it was because of the prejudice of Jonah that he got there. When he ran out of strength, he didn't, he didn't spin in a good direction. When he ran out of strength, he spun in a negative direction. He was suicidal. We see it in chapter 1, verse 12. We see it in chapter 4, verses 3, verse 9. It was not over his situation. It wasn't over his sin. It wasn't even over the sin of others. He was suicidal over God's mercy being offered to people that he didn't think deserved it. Jonah was willing to die rather than obey God and see Nineveh repent. We have to be careful to avoid falling into the prejudice of Jonah. Number two, let's look at the prayer of Jonah. The prayer of Jonah. And I want to show you three things in this prayer. Number one, his reality. His reality. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, we see the prayer of Jonah. And he gets to this point where he says, As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. He prayed this prayer in the belly of the fish. Why? Because he had no other choice. 
Jonah was at a point where he had no other option but to pray. He wanted to die. He told him to throw him overboard. That didn't work. The fish swallowed him. He thought, this will work. I'll die with the fish eating me. That didn't work. He's still alive. And at the end of his rope, he prayed. Here's the first question. Do we find ourselves waiting until that's our only option before we go to the Lord in prayer? Do we find ourselves waiting until that's the only option before we go to the Lord in prayer? He could have prayed a lot of places. He could have prayed on the dock before he got on the ship going in the wrong direction. He, should have, he could have prayed on the deck of the ship uh, before he went down and went to sleep. He could have prayed in the belly of the ship before he got thrown into the sea and found, wound up in the belly of the whale. He did not. You know why? Because he had other options. You know why? Because he trusted in himself. He trusted in his own strength. He didn't need to pray. By the way, can I tell you, that's one of the most dangerous places for us to be. Let me, let me, let me, be, let me be clear for me to be. When things are going really well, I kind of put God on a shelf. Anybody else want to admit to that? When things are, man, and by the way, the older I get, the less days I have like this. <laughs> when nothing hurts, when everything feels good, when there's money in the bank, when the, the family's all happy and we're all singing, you know, just everything's rocking, we're singing songs, driving down the road together, we're not at each other's throat, the dogs aren't tearing stuff up, the cat's not barfing or doing something on the cat on the you know, couch cushions, like when everything's going good, I just check God out. I'm like, hey man, just chill out. I got this. But my whole buddy, <laughs> when I wind up in the belly of the whale, when I, when, I, when I come to the end of myself, when I get to a point where I'm like, Lord, I don't think I can go on, all of a sudden it's like, God, where are you? I, I want to give you this again. This is old, but it's good. If you feel distant from God, who moved? You see, we, we can't afford to wait until we're in the belly of the fish before we go to the Lord in prayer. So number one, his reality. Number two, his recognition. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. He says, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Jonah realized that he had allowed his nation and his pride to become his God. And again, I'm warning you, we're like that. We have that tendency. We can't let that happen. Don't ever start saying, man, my mom was right. I am special. No, don't... Like, Purge that from your mind because the problem with thinking that is then you think, I don't need God. Look at me. Look how great I am. Look how many followers I have. Look how many likes that Facebook post. Look, look how many retweets I got. Look, look at all the stuff that I had. Again, we're the only country I know of that's building buildings left and right to put stuff in that we don't even need, don't even use. I just don't want to get rid of it, so I'm going to pay you money to hide my stuff in your big stuff barn. You start thinking that you got enough stuff that you don't need God, you ain't got jack. So his reality, his recognition, number three, his repentance. Again, I love this verse. He says in verse 9, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Now, again, don't miss, this is the second prayer in the book. The first prayer in the book is prayed by the pagan sailors. Jonah prayed a hopeful promise to God that he would fulfill his vow. But, but, but wait a minute now, before we get too excited about this prayer, when did he pray it? When that was all he could do. See, this has a vibe of me of that drunk prayer at the end of a bender. Now, I'm going to be real careful. I don't need anybody else getting into trouble. But let me just say, I, I can recall praying a prayer where I thank God that porcelain was cold. 
If you don't get that, good. I hope you never do. But I see some of y'all smiling and nodding. I'm not alone. It's that prayer of, God, I promise, if you'll let me feel better, if you'll make this stop, I'll never do this again. And what do we add to the end of it? And this time, I mean it. It's the gambler's prayer when he's hit a cold streak. See, the gambler's not praying before he walks into the, the, the casino. The gambler's not praying before he sits down at the poker table. The gambler's not praying before he picks up the dice. But man, when his luck starts running cold, all of a sudden, oh, Lord, you got to help me get, I got to roll seven here, Lord. Lord, please give me an ace. Lord, please let it land on the red 10 or the black nine. I don't know what the numbers are on that stupid wheel, but I, just you start, do you ever pray for a marble? I've seen, I've seen people in casinos. It ain't pretty. They're, they're playing for marbles. They throw that marble out and start praying for it like it's a family member with an illness. It, it's the prayer of a cheater who's gotten caught. If you're here today and you're married, look at me. Everybody look at me. If you're here today and you're married, you better be praying now that the Lord God would guard your heart and your eyes to not ever look at another person and start thinking about doing something with them that you should only be doing with your spouse. You better be praying today. Matter of fact, brother, sister, you should have been praying yesterday. If you wait till you start lusting after somebody to start praying, your ship is already sunk. Don't, I'm saying, go ahead and pray. But you should have been praying earlier. If you start praying after you have already committed the act, you're sunk. If you start praying after you got caught, that prayer is pretty much worthless. Unless it's a prayer of repentance. Most of the time, though, we don't pray prayers of repentance. We pray prayers of, God, get me out of this. God, give me the Jedi mind trick so I can say, you did not see me with this person. See, this is the kind of prayer Jonah's praying, the prayer of a drunk at the end of a bender, the prayer of a gambler when he's hit a cold street, the prayer of a cheater when they've gotten caught. It's a prayer of, I'm busted, and now I want God to come bail me out. It's funny to me how we never pray, and then when we do pray, we get mad that God doesn't just jump and answer and do exactly what we want Him to do. Again, if you're a, if you're a parent here, if your kid never speaks to you, never talks to you, never calls your name, never tells you anything good, never talks to you about their day, never uh, does the dishes or takes out the trash, never does anything, and all of a sudden your kid has a flat tire and they call you, how responsive are you going to want to be in your flesh? Your kid never talks to you, never tells you anything, and all of a sudden your kid calls you from jail. Hey, I, I'm, I've been arrested. I need somebody to come bail me out. Now, if you're being honest, now some of y'all grandparents, I can't get you, baby. <laughs> But if the parents would be honest, they'd be like, oh, really? Oh, you want to talk to me now, huh? Maybe God can be a little bit like that. When we never talk to him, we never go to him in prayer, we never ask him, Lord, what do you have for, me, for my life? What decisions would you like me to make? And then when we make our, our lives a mess and we go, who fixed it? Sometimes I think God goes, eh, I'm going to give you a minute. I don't think you've learned the lesson you need to learn from this yet. Jonah's prayer sounds less sincere when we see his statement in chapter 4. Do you remember that? Right after God has, has shown favor and he's allowed the Ninevites to repent, he relented from, show, from destroying Nineveh. Here's what, Jonah, here's what it said about Jonah. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. What about that prayer? We got this beautiful prayer in chapter 2. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out from the deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me there. I will uh, fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then one page flip later in chapter 4, 
Jonah was greatly displeased because God didn't destroy who he thought he needed to destroy. Here's the next question. Is your prayer life like that? Is your prayer life like that? Where you pray this beautiful prayer, but then you don't really live up to it? Would your prayers sound less sincere if we could see what happens after church? Would your prayers sound less sincere if we could see your browser history? Would your prayer be less and sound less sincere if we could see where you went Friday, Saturday night, who you were with and what you were doing? How you thought? If, we, if, your, if your thoughts could be projected on this screen up here, would it match your prayer? By the way, I, I've been in some small church. Most of my whole life has been in really small churches, rural churches. And it's always interesting to me. you got some old guy as a farmer, just salt of the earth, dirt kicking, corn growing farmer, eighth grade education. You ask him to pray over the offering, he goes into the King James. <laughs> Father, hast thou come down from thy great assembly. And Lord, bless the gift and the giver. Lord, bless this food and the hands that prepared it. Lord, put a hedge. I've always been, as a little kid, trying to figure out what does a hedge of protection look like. Is it a privet hedge? Is it briars? Th rose thorn? I don't know. But see, those prayers don't seem that great when you don't live like somebody who has the ear of God. One of the blessings and curses, I guess, of having a dad who managed a liquor store in town, in a very small town, Sometimes I would see people and I would know that they regularly came and saw my dad and it made me kind of wonder how much sincerity some of their religious activity had. Here's what Warren Wearsby says about Jonah's prayer. <clears throat> he says his prayer was born out of affliction, not affection. He cried out to God because he was in danger, not because he delighted in the Lord. Here's a little ray of sunshine for you though. But better that he should pray compelled by any motive than not to pray at all. My, my fear is that much, much of the time, maybe most of the time, we are the same way. That we, we only pray out of affliction, not affection, when we're in danger, not because we delight in him. That our only times of being pushed to our knees is when we're literally being pushed to our knees. William Law said this, He who has learned to pray has learned the greatest secret of a holy and happy life. What I tell people all the time is that prayer is the most uh, powerful weapon in the arsenal of the believer, and yet it's also the least used. The promise from the belly of the fish sounds a lot like one of the psalmists. It was probably King David. In Psalm 66, he wrote this in verse 13. I will enter your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows that my lips promised and my mouth spoke during my distress. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like Jonah? So here's... A question and a follow-up question. Have you ever really needed to get along with God? You ever just been in a time in your life, a season you're going through, circumstance, situation where you said, man, I really just need to get along with God? I hope so. By the way, if you've never felt like that, <clears throat> you are delusional. <laughs> you think you can do this stuff on your own. You think you can make it through this life on your own. You are kidding yourself. So I hope that you have, at some point, felt like I really need to get along with God. Now, here's the follow-up question. Have you ever wanted to get into the belly of a fish in order to get along with God? <laughs> Probably not. Here's the problem. 
that's how disobedience often works. Many, many times, even in the life of a believer, when you start allowing your own flesh to call the shots enough, you start living in some amount of disobedience, God will send you into the belly of the fish. Now, it may not be a literal belly of a fish, but it will feel much the same as Jonah felt, where you will just feel hopeless and you'll feel dis- uh, detached. And that's usually when we start to cry out to God. We're a day late and a dollar short at that point. We should have been crying out to God on the pier. We should have been crying out to God in the boat. We should have been crying out to God long before we ever decided to walk our own way. So we see Jonah's prejudice. We see his prayer. Now, number three, look at his penitence. Penitence is a a state of being repentant. I believe penitence is why we call David a man after God's own heart, even though he was a a rapist, a murderer, a a warmonger. He was arrogant, prideful, and yet he was a man after God's own heart. He was not a man after God's own heart because he was perfect. He was a man after God's own heart because he was penitent. When Nathan the prophet told him this story about the lamb and King David said, whoever that man is ought to be, and he said, that's you, king. He repented, and that's how we need to respond. This was a temporary state for Jonah, sadly. But I want to show you three things that happened after this beautiful prayer in the belly of the whale, or the fish. Number one, the atonement of Jonah. In chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 3, we see this change in Jonah's heart. But as for me, I'll sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill the vow I owed. And then in verse 3, right after God says, get up and go, it says Jonah got up and went. So we see this this atonement and we see Jonah being obedient. Kind of. Remember this five-word sermon in Hebrew where he walks in and he preaches this sermon and all these people respond. I guarantee you he didn't preach it like his life depended on it. He preached it like he was checking a box. O Arba, Yom Ninveh Havak. That's the five words in Hebrew. Od Arba, Yom Ninveh Havak. I don't see him, I see him walking in and preaching like this. <sighs> Repent for in 40 days and then it will be destroyed. <sighs> like that's how I, I don't see him having compassion, having a uh, desire to see people change. I see him checking a box. So he fulfilled his vow, but not fully. Number two, not only the atonement of Jonah, but the activity of God. Verse 4, he preaches this sermon. It saved a city. Saved, saved a, a big city. The king repented. Just a reminder, that's God's work and not Jonah's. The same applies to every sermon ever preached by any individual. The same applies to every person who ever goes out and shares their faith. Any person who ever goes out and tries to be an evangelist. Any missionary on this planet that has ever existed. The work is not theirs. The work is God's. What they bring to the table is obedience. We are responsible for our obedience and God is responsible for the outcome. That's how it works. It's the activity of God. Third, let's look at the attitude of Jonah. Again, in Chapter 3, verse 4, we see his attitude where he does give the message. And then they respond. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, we see his anger because God relented. We see his anger because God provided a tree and then the tree went away. Jonah's message was incredibly short. Some commentaries I've read have called it prophetic sabotage. Like he walked in and said it. It's almost like maybe he said it under his breath. 
Like, he, he, you know, he wasn't wanting them to repent, so you can't imagine he was very motivated. Even though God had delivered him, he had had the, the, the whale or the fish upchuck him onto the, onto the beach. He walks in. I mean, he's a pretty sight. He's a pretty thing. He walks in, and he preaches this message. It's five words, and he goes away, and then God does all the work. The king showed humility. The prophet of God never did. I'm going to go back to Jonah for a minute because I want to compare these two, Moses and Jonah. Let's look at them just for a second. Moses feared failure in sharing God's message. Moses feared failure. Look at the book of Exodus. I'm going to give you four verses. Exodus 3.11. Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He felt like he was inept. Exodus 4.1. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me and will not obey me? And say, the Lord did not appear to you. He didn't think he could get the job done. Exodus 4.10, Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or since you've been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. Amen. I identify with that. Many believe that, that Moses had a severe speech impediment, possibly a stutter. And so he's, he's not equipped. Exodus 4.13, Moses just says, Lord, please send someone else. That's a far cry from Isaiah 6, 8, right? Here am I, send me. Moses said, there are them, send them. I didn't get, like, get somebody else. So Moses had a fear of failure in sharing God's message. Jonah feared success. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Moses, uh, uh, Jonah's biggest fear was that he was going to be successful in what God had called him to do. Look at Jonah 4, verses 1 through 3. Please, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, God. I knew you were slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sin and disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. Moses feared failure. Jonah feared success. Here's my question for you this morning. What do you fear in sharing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And by the way, if you're not sharing it, you're scared. It's just a misplaced fear. So we've talked about the, pri the prejudice, the prayer, and the penitence of Jonah. But number four, let's look at the most important thing. Let's look at God's purpose for Jonah. You note that we read the words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We read it in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and then we see it in verse 1 of chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Where we don't see those words spoken is in the storm or in the whale. Did you notice that? It doesn't say the word of the Lord came to Jonah when he was asleep in the bottom of the ship. It doesn't say the word of the Lord came to Jonah when he was in the water or in the fish. We don't see that there. Here's what I'm going to give you to take away from that. Don't expect God to speak to you in your storm when you've ignored or disobeyed him when he spoke to you in the calm. Some of you today, today, right now, some of you, God is prompting you today to give your life to Jesus. And I'm just, I hope this is not the case, but I, I, I study people. I know people. I don't know much, but I know people. Some of you are having that conviction right now, and yet you're going to walk out of this building today without confessing Christ. But if you get out there and get in an accident and you're scared that you're going to die, I guarantee you that's the first prayer you're going to pray. 
Some of you have young children and you're flailing away trying to raise them and you're not asking God to help you. What's it going to take? What's going to have to happen for you to say, okay, God, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable doing this anymore. I need you to help me. We want God to speak to us in the storm, but we don't want to speak to him when it's calm. Never miss the fact that God chose to use Jonah even though he knew his character. Even in his disobedience, Jonah was used by God to reach the sailors and the Ninevites. So here's the one question I'm going to ask that I will give you an answer for. So what is God's purpose for Jonah? Well, it wasn't to save Nineveh. About 150 years after Jonah was there, the Medes came in around 612 B.C. and they wiped Nineveh out, destroyed it. So it wasn't to save Nineveh. It wasn't to salvage Jonah. We don't have any further record of Jonah after this book. Isn't that weird? Like you would think we would either close in chapter 3 and we'd all go, hey, Jonah figured it out. No, we got chapter 4 where Jonah left mad. We don't even know where he went. But we know he, he, he didn't go away happy. Wherever he went, he went away mad. So it wasn't to save Nineveh. It wasn't to salvage Jonah. It was to show three things. Number one, it was to show God's control. His control over nature, over Jonah, over the pagans. Uh, look with me in verse 17 of chapter 1. It says, God appointed a great fish. Now, flip over to chapter 4. In verse 6, it says, the Lord God appointed a plant. And then in verse 7, it says, God appointed a worm. And then in verse 8, it says that God appointed a a wind. That's an interesting word appointed. In the Hebrew, it is the word manah. And it means prepared or assigned. So in four different instances in, this in these four chapters, God prepared or assigned something in nature. It, it, it fails to say that God appointed Jonah. But he used him. So God has control over everything. He controlled the great fish, the storm, the seas, even the dice, the plant, the worm, the wind, and maybe praying at a marble in a roulette wheel is not the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Shouldn't be there doing it, but anyway. So God controlled all these things, but watch what happened. God spoke to Jonah. The word of the Lord came not to the fish, not to the wind, not to the worm. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. He also spoke through Jonah where he spoke the five-word sermon that God gave him to speak, and he used it to save people. So not only God's control, but number two, God's character, his love for all nations and all of creation. Um, God has a love that we can't fathom for this world that we live in. It really frustrates me when I hear people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is war and anger and wrath, and the God of the New Testament is peace, love, and happiness. No, 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 same God. Have you ever thought about this? God needed Jonah in the water so he could get him into the whale, right? Why didn't he just destroy the ship? If God's just a God of wrath, these were pagan sailors, these were not Israelites, these were not chosen people of God. Why, if God needed Jonah in the water, why didn't he just destroy the boat? He could have sent a wave over and crushed it. He could have blown the wind harder and flipped it. He could have killed everybody on that boat except the prophet who would be swallowed by a whale and taken to the shore, but God didn't. You know why? Because our God is a God of mercy and grace. 
Yes, he brought a storm, but he allowed there to be repentance on behalf of the pagan sailors. God's control, God's character. Number three, God's correction. You know why God didn't kill them? Because he offered them grace so that they would have an opportunity to know that Yahweh was the one true and living God. Here's the point. God will use anyone, anywhere, anything, anytime that he desires to use. We just better make sure that we are on board. If we're submissive and we have our yes on the table, it will be a whole lot smoother than if we fight him tooth and nail. Don't miss the fact that Jonah said no and God said, I bet you are. God said, go that way. He said, I'm going to go that way. And eventually he's like, all right, so I'm going this way. It just wasn't pleasant. You can be a good example or you can be a cautionary tale. The choice is yours and it depends on your submission to him. Ephesians 6, 6 says, don't work while being watched only as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, here's the key, do God's will from your heart. So how do we close this? How do we, how do we wrap this up? How do we put a bow on this and, and kind of put this in shoe leather so we can understand it? I, I want to try to use a visual. Jeremiah is going to come and help me. Look at there. We just so happen to have a stool. How'd that work out? You can sit right there. So I want to use this illustration. There's a guy by the name of Leonard Sweet. Help me with this this time so I don't have to. You got it? You tie it. A guy named Leonard Sweet that uses this, uh, tells this story about a Native American tribe. And they, uh, they had this weird way of kind of uh, shoving their young men into adulthood. When they have a young brave, you know, 13 years old, something like that, it's this time for their test of their manhood. And so what they do is the father brings them out into the wilderness. He takes them out deep into the woods. And he brings the young man in and he sits him on a stump blindfolded and he tells the young man you can't take the blindfold off until I've had time to leave and he sits him on the stump and he walks away And when the father is far enough away the young man thinks it's okay and he takes off the blindfold go ahead Jeremiah and so he sits on this stump and we can't we can't make it pitch black in here but just use your imagination <laughs> It's pitch black. There's not a light anywhere. And this 13-year-old young boy is sitting on a stump in the middle of the wilderness. Can you imagine that every noise? You know how when you're deer hunting guys and every squirrel sounds like a 12-point buck? Can you imagine sitting on a stump in the middle of the dark, in the middle of the woods, as a 13-year-old boy? Every chirp, every insect rustling, every hoot of an owl, you think it's a bear coming. There's, there's a, some monster in the woods coming to get me. And it's pitch black, and he can't see anything. He just sits there all night long. And then finally, mercifully, the sun starts to come up. And as the sun rises, it starts to illuminate. The young man sees the sun, and he starts looking around, and he's, he's making sure that everything's okay. And, and guess what he sees when he looks around? He looks over and he sees his dad. You see, he thought he was left alone. He thought that his dad had walked away and gone back to the tribe. What he didn't realize was that the father had never left him. The father was still watching over him. Even though he couldn't see him, even though he, he couldn't touch him, even though he didn't hear him, the father never left 
He was always watching over his son. He was never really in danger because the father was never too far away. See, that's how the Lord works with us. For you and I, for those of us who have given our lives to Christ, once we become children of God, he never leaves us. He didn't leave Jonah. He was with Jonah on the pier. He was with Jonah when he was paying his fare. He was with Jonah in the boat. He was with Jonah in the whale. He was with Jonah on the shore. He was with Jonah when he preached his sermon. He was with Jonah when he was mad and angry about everything else that transpired. But the father never left his child. That's what I want us to take away from Jonah, if nothing else, is the ever-present father who loves us with an unsearchable love, with an unending love. Grace and the worship team are going to come lead us. If you would, stand with me. As always, our time of invitation here is if you need to know Christ, you need to repent of your sins and come to faith in Christ, you come. If you need to rededicate your life, you've made a profession of faith, but you've walked away from it, you're not living the way you know you're called to live as a believer, you come. If you need to join our church, you need to move your letter, all of those things are great. You can come do that today. But here, in this moment, in this time of invitation, specifically, here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to remind yourself that if you have committed your life to Christ, the Father is never too far away. Maybe you're like Jonah today. Maybe you're running from the presence of God. Maybe you're running from a call of God on your life. I'm here to tell you that God is still pursuing you. He's still watching over you. He wants you to repent. He wants you to pray that prayer of, I will fulfill my vow. I will come back to you, God. I repent of my sin, and I want to live for Christ. So for this time of invitation, I'm just going to ask you to, to bow your heads and close your eyes and just remind yourself that God is watching you at all times. He's always there for you, and just thank Him for that. And again, if you feel distant, who's moved? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is seated on his throne. If you feel distant from God, would you come back to him today? Would you just let go of whatever baggage you're carrying and repent of your sins and come to Christ? I'm going to pray. If you need somebody to pray with you, you need to make a profession of faith or, or anything like that, you come to me while we sing. I'm going to pray. When I say amen, you move. Father, thank you for this time and your word. Thank you for the the truth and the power of your word. I pray, God, that you would use it today to help us to, to ask these questions of ourselves, to, to search our hearts and make sure that we don't have anything that would not be pleasing to you. God, remind us of your ever-present faithfulness. Remind us all that you've never left us and you never will. And that whatever we've done is not enough that you can't forgive and use us again. So, God, give us the strength and the boldness to confess our sins to you, knowing that you'll wash us. We give this time to you in Christ's name, amen.